it reminded me of uh, a trip you and I took. You drove me around a bit of Kansas so I could see your world. And you said something that I, I will never forget. You said, the world will probably always be more beautiful than useful. Beauty is essential. And I'm saying that with the desecration that's going on with the ecosphere right now. Welcome to Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. Conversations about how to understand the past and imagine the future with one of the founders of the environmental education and sustainable agriculture movements. This is a show for the curious and the concerned. Folks who like to think about big questions and know we have big problems to face. After a university teaching career, Wes Jackson co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, an internationally renowned research and education center. For more than four decades, he's aimed at changing not only the way we farm and feed ourselves, but also the way we think about how the world around us really works and where we fit in it. That work led to a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the Right Livelihood Award, often called the Alternative Nobel Prize. In Podcast from the Prairie, Robert Jensen will talk with Wes about how he developed natural systems agriculture and his distinctive creaturely worldview, and what that means for a just and sustainable human future. Jensen is a retired University of Texas professor and the author of the forthcoming book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson. Robert and Wes will discuss science and theology, history and philosophy, ethics and politics. And Wes will do what he does best, tell engaging stories about everything from his childhood on a Kansas farm, to his work in genetics, to his quest to revolutionize agriculture. This is episode number one. Yes, it's our inaugural episode titled Intellectual Grounding. Now let's turn it over to Robert Jensen, who will lead us into today's conversation with Wes Jackson. I'm Robert Jensen. I'll be your guide into the restless and relentless mind of Wes Jackson. I first bumped into Wes's work more than three decades ago, and his ideas have had a profound influence on my thinking about society and ecology. My conversations with Wes in this podcast will explore why that is and give you a chance to hear how his mind works, how Wes has cultivated the art of seeing small and thinking big. We're going to have conversations about global issues that begin with Wes's deep roots in the prairie where he spent most of his life. So we're glad you can join us. Wes, good morning. Good morning to you. I want to start in this inaugural podcast with the influences on your thinking. How did this restless and relentless mind get formed? So I, I want to start with a blunt and perhaps embarrassing question. In uh, the introduction to the podcast, it mentioned that you won a MacArthur Fellowship in 1992. That's the award that's often referred to as the Genius Grant. So, Mr. Jackson, I have a question. Are you now or have you ever been a genius? <laughs> well, that's asking that question going way back, I don't know, half a century. Uh, have you ever been or are you now a communist? And uh, no, I have plenty of evidence that I am not a genius. I mean, it takes some pretty fancy math to demonstrate that the earth goes around the sun, that the sun doesn't go around the earth. And um, I couldn't do it. Some people can write giant equations, uh, even without deriving them. For instance, I've had some statistics courses. you got to have statistics if you're going to be a geneticist or plant breeder or whatever. I can't even derive the equation. I do what you might call cookbook statistics. Show me the equation and then, okay, I'll comply. There's a funny story about the founder of modern statistics, Sir Ronald Fisher, he apparently could just write the equation. Well, then he'd get graduate students and uh, have them derive them. And there's a story about he uh, gave the equation to a student and told him to derive it. And the uh, student kept coming back. Well, no, uh, Sir Ronald, this is not uh, going to work. Well, yes, it will. 
I don't know, after months, maybe even a year, why he finally got it. That's a genius. Uh, they're different than us. You know, there's certain musicians. Some can learn to play the piano just as soon as they put their fingers on it. And there are people that can think fast. Uh, I would say they're sort of genius. I can't think fast. I'm a ponderer. I'm a slow reader. And also, I'm beginning to think I have attention deficit disorder and always have. So uh, I hope that satisfies everybody that I don't think I'm a genius. And uh, anybody that does, doesn't know enough about geniushood. <laughs> Let's go back to your early schooling. Uh, you grew up in North Topeka, uh, went to public schools. Uh, what kind of student were you thinking way back when in uh, grade school, junior high, high school? How did you do? Well, I went to a two-room country school that was only eight um, months long because it was rural America. I grew up in the Kansas River Valley near Topeka. And in that country school, we had some good teachers and some teachers not so good. I had a very good teacher for the seventh and eighth grade. So when I went to high school as a freshman, man, I could I could hardly be stopped. But uh, boy, my sophomore, junior, senior years were terrible. Then I started college and I carried the momentum of poor studenthood. And it wasn't until about no, halfway through my junior year in college, I was able to overcome all that previous period. So uh, my best experience in the school world was graduate school. I had a lot of Ds. I had Cs. I had Bs. I had a few As here and there. I mean, got an A in genetics. But I started out with a D in botany. And in fact, because I couldn't have a D in my major field, which was biology, I told the prof, I can't have a D in my major field. And he says, well, you got one, uh, but if you, uh, I'll give you six weeks, and if you get an A, why, then I'll give you a C. So I ended up getting a C for the course. But that same professor wrote a glowing recommendation for me to get into graduate school in botany at the University of Kansas. So it's been sort of all over the place, but I probably about right in the middle of my class in both high school and college, I think. Okay. So you've disavowed the, the genius label. Um, yeah. You weren't a child prodigy. You were an uneven student, but it sounds like when something caught your fancy, you would dig in. Is that how you operated as a, a student, you know, waiting for the things that really excited you? Yeah, I guess maybe uh, one could say I was sort of in business for myself. Uh, and uh, if you're in business for yourself, you know, I, that's what you are. Uh, so you're not worrying about grades. and You just either do it or you don't, according to whatever it is that is, um, is satisfying. Yeah. So you did well enough to graduate from high school. You have a biology degree from Kansas Wesleyan University. You went on and did a master's degree at the University of Kansas in botany. And then what led you to genetics and why was genetics so exciting? This, of course, was back um, in the late 50s, early 60s when genetics was really taking off as a field. Well, I was always interested in heredity. I think if you grow up on a farm, you can't fail to be interested in heredity. I mean, you see the breeding of your cows or the breeding of your hogs and you know who the parents were and so on. And you know, you see all this diversity around you. And I think that genetics was just natural for me. And probably because of the experience of growing up on a farm. That's so, an important point because we learn of course in school, but we learn a lot about the world in places other than the, the classroom. What would you say 
you learned about the world from growing up on a farm and remembering you were born in, in 1936. You grew up on a farm before the large-scale mechanization of the post-World War II period. I don't necessarily mean specific skills you learned on the farm, but more about the orientation to the world and how to live in the world. What, what did you absorb from farm life, do you think? Well, I mean, you had work to do. You had to be able to eat and you had to be able to sell your products. And uh, that sort of set the tone. And you didn't waste things. That was the world that I lived in. It was a world in which you were caring for these products of the land. Well, now we have the products of the fossil fuels, and we've got more clothing around. We know what to do with and so on. That's just one example. So, I mean, if we take food, clothing, shelter as basics, and what's been added, of course, is now transportation as a necessity. But you take food, the land, or the ocean, clothing, and your shelter from the land. I mean, how hard is that? But somehow we've lost an awareness of source. And now it comes from, a lot of it, millions and millions of year old plants, animals, whatever. You're talking about fossil fuels, which are the, the remnants yeah. of all that old plant and animal life. Right. So you've, you've identified two things that are relevant from your farm experience. One is you were up close with the non-human world, with nature. You saw animals, you saw reproduction, and it, it sounds like it made you curious about how the world works. And you also grew up in a, a period, you were born during the Great Depression, and so that kind of frugality also shaped the way you lived. I also think that, you know, I mentioned this phrase. It comes from a New Yorker writer, Adam Gopnik. You turned me on to this. The phrase, the ability to see small and think big. So Gopnik was talking about good history writing, he said, cultivates the ability to see small, that is, see details and, and pay attention to details, but to think big, to think in global and historical terms. And it seems to me that you were just doing a little bit of that. Uh, what was it about that phrase, seeing small and thinking big, that grabbed your attention? Well, uh, I think that anybody that is working in the area of science especially ought to be seeing small and thinking big all the time. Uh, my friend Angus Wright, professor at California State University, Sacramento, Latin American historian, I think, explained it the best. You know, you, you have a telescope, and you can look way out, and you have a microscope, and you can see in close. And uh, there is a continuum of our ability to see. And so there's some people that only want to look, say, through the microscope or the small scale. Some people want to look only at the big and miss the small. I mean, isn't it just natural, really, that um, if we're, may I think if we're left alone, we're going to see both. Uh, I think there's something about the nature of our coursework that um, gives a kind of a specialization to it all. I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is perhaps a digression, but many years ago, the university turned itself into a kind of an industrial ideal. Uh, I mean, what we got out of that was the knowledge factory. And uh, what happened, of course, it got top-heavy. And I'm getting this from my late friend, Stan Rowe. And he went on to say it had become a know-how institution when it ought to be a know-why institution. And so if you're not interested in... <laughs> How, some, how something got big or how something came from the small, then uh, you're living within a kind of a narrow little cell. It's like being in a, a cell in isolation. And uh, nobody wants that. But we allow our minds to, uh, I don't know, I think there's pretty good reasons why, and it has to do with being able to get a job. and 
becoming the right kind of an expert and so on. And I think one of the worst things that has happened to humanity is giving high standing to the hard-headed realist. And the hard-headed realist just wants to know what it's going to mean in some direct economic terms. And uh, it becomes a kind of a put-down for those that want to use the telescope and the microscope in their thought. Um, One of the phrases that you have mentioned over and over again over the years is the need to drive knowledge out of its categories. Is that what you uh, were referring to when you used that phrase, the the kind of hyper-specialization of the modern university? Yeah. And what's wrong what's wrong with that? Isn't that what has produced incredible detailed, you know, knowledge about the natural world? Well, yes. I mean, this is uh, Yeah, I mean, Wendell Berry and I have quite a few conversations. And um I think probably Wendell's the one that gave me that line. Uh, It came as a result of us thinking about the university and what it has become and uh, the consequences of specialization without uh, going into a a deeper consideration and a more expansive consideration. And uh, it comes down to what does it mean to be a human being? It's pretty easy to allow oneself in this culture to become some sort of a specialist and get the schooling for the specialist. There's nothing wrong with learning the details, say, of of how the atoms came to be. Um, there's nothing wrong with almost any of those categories, but it has a way of stopping the larger social, cultural, political questions. And uh, one thing I've noticed is, uh, you know, I've spent a fair amount of my time with the Land Institute fundraising. And, um, of course, I want to tell a story about our perennial grain polycultures and trying to build an agriculture based on the way nature's ecosystems work and on and on. And there are some folk that uh, in round one, uh, well, they really don't have the chance to put any money into it and so on. They try to be dismissive. And then in round two, you find uh, that they have children and they have grandchildren maybe and that opens up something but they're still reluctant and then there's a third sort of level of awareness and uh you don't find that in all people but find it in more people than we might imagine that given a chance to think deeply about the human condition and where we have been and where we seem headed, then there is a kind of an openness that um, shows they have been thinking some, or they realize they need to be thinking, both small and large. And uh, this doesn't happen in every encounter when you're out trying to raise money, uh, but it does happen often, and sometimes in a surprising sort of way. And I look at that level as the big uniting uh, reality. And I think a lot of education is to find ways to get to that deeper reality so that we don't have to pass through the immediate uh, (laughs) monetary or economic product to think about what is important? And that that's really what we're talking about. What is really important? What are the criteria for being uh, for something being important? And if you stop too soon along the way, uh, saying, well, I want a new car or something, that'll limit you. But then 
Others, I find what you might call the really generous are those that are looking for the the big picture. Mm-hmm. And so I think education has not been as good as it should. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the moment where you decided to start the Land Institute uh, back in 1976. So you've told this story many times, but for listeners who don't know it, uh, you were a professor at Cal State Sacramento. You were tenured, full professor. That means you had pretty much guaranteed lifetime employment. And you uh, gave that up with your wife at the time, Dana Jackson, your family, three children, to start the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas with virtually no money, uh, an idea for an alternative school that was not very well developed and there was no guarantee of success. So what were you thinking? Why would you give up that incredible security? Plus, you know, all that comes with being a tenured professor, you know, good libraries, lots of time to do your work. Why would you give that up for a hard scrabble existence in central Kansas with no guarantees? Well, I did consider myself a teacher, and uh, I put it in a kind of religious language, I guess. Teaching was my calling, my calling in the sense that I want to do it. Uh, I want to engage in the the language that... Um, <laughs> that is, you know, available. And the only language available in the universities was really words. And I noticed that students were too many of them, more given to what I've called minimal compliance. And what I wanted out of them was spontaneous elaboration. That's the way I've put it many times. So what kind of an institution will move beyond the minimal compliance approach? What will bring on the spontaneous elaboration? Well, if we're spending may half our time with reading, thinking, discussing, uh, we ought to be spending half our time in a hands-on sort of way. Uh, I like to think about that opposable thumb and its role in, in building the brain, the ability to manipulate and to think. And I think the the thumb and the brain are one. And if we're denying the opportunity for the use of our bodies, then we're somehow limited and so I wanted a school like that. I'd been impressed by Deep Springs, uh, that school there in, um, what is it, over there near the California, Nevada line, and that they worked. And at the same time, they knew about Thucydides, and they knew Homer, and they, you know, they... They were into big picture, and at the same time, the dealing with the farm or ranch, they had to be dealing with the little picture. And I think that's the healthy, the development of a healthy mind comes out of both. So the Land Institute started as an alternative school, but quickly became uh, known as a research institution You mentioned perennial polycultures. That's what we now call natural systems agriculture. Your observation that most of our grain crops, which are the bulk of our diets, are annuals grown in monocultures, ecologically very destructive, soil erosion and soil degradation being the consequence. And so you ask, could there be perennial grains grown in polycultures? And that's really your signature idea, in a sense, is what a lot of people know you for. But in this conversation, you've already mentioned several people, Angus Wright, one of your colleagues, Jay Stan Rowe, an ecologist you learned a lot from, your friend, the writer Wendell Berry. It reminds me of something you say uh, often 
you'll joke that you don't know what you think until you've talked to your friends. And so you're yeah. known as a kind of uh, unique thinker, somebody who's come up with potentially world-changing ideas. But you also say that that you're very much a product of your interaction with, with friends and colleagues. What's so important about that? And do you really not know what you think till you talk to your friends? Well, my friends, if they have an idea that is different than what I've been thinking, knowing the totality of their lives, uh, then I want to take seriously some counter to what I'm about to spew or what I do spew. My brother, Elmer, who was born in 1919, he was as bright as they come. He had only one semester of college, but we would engage. And uh, he said to me once, you're always quoting somebody else. Don't you have a mind of your own? And uh, the fact of the matter is I don't. He was frustrated with me because we were I think he was on the losing end of an argument that particular time, but uh, <laughs> but he's right. We don't have minds of our own. And if we did, we would be a real mess. So it's it's I kind of look at this as kind of a big old soup. And uh, you choose people to become friends that... Um, you rely on. I mean, I rely on some people that are about political opposites of me. I know that there's a certain authenticity, though. They're not stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may have very good reasons. Well, I want to know about that. And I may get in some pretty good arguments with them. Uh, we may get uh, our voices rising a little bit in the conversation, but it will have been worthwhile many times, not always, to have heard that other point of view. So when I say we're in a soup, <laughs> you know, we're kind of all stirring around and trying to imagine each of us have different ways of thinking of advancing the human race. Mm. So I don't know. I'm not I don't know how to answer this very well. Yeah. I can see. Well, let me ask the question maybe in a different way. Um, you have had the, the pleasure of being around some of the experts in fields you care about. You've met Hans Jenny, the founder of soil science in the United States, probably the most important person in helping us understand soil. But we already mentioned you live in central Kansas in Salina. It's not a big city. And I've been with you in Salina and seen you interact with folks there, uh, farmers, folks at the hardware store. And you seem just as interested in what's on their mind as you might be, a, you know, a major world-class professor. What, what do you get from that day-to-day -day interaction in a place that you've now lived most of your adult life? Well, there's a certain amount of warmth and friendship that uh, there won't be an exercise of that friendship till I come back into that store again or until I meet them again. But I, when you run into uh, authenticity, you're running into someone that has been serious and is um, maybe trying to make it trying to deal with a problem. I'll tell you, I taught high school for two years. And when I started, I was fresh with a master's degree in botany from the University of Kansas. And I went right into teaching high school biology. And I was uh, frustrated with the fact that these kids, they were sophomores. And I can't imagine how I was so dumb about all this. But um, there was the basketball coach. I was a track coach and also coach football uh, that was across the hall from me. And he had been there, I don't know, 12 years or so. And uh, he said to me once, 
Wes, you do not know uh, what it was like when they walked out of their home this morning. You do not know about what problems they and their family members are going through. Ease up. Well, uh, I did. Uh, it was one of the best pieces of advice, but why wasn't I able to know that? But well, what came from all of that, though, many years later, in a conversation with Gary Snyder, when I still had some kind of maybe too much sense of oughtness in me, fueling some complaint, uh, Gary said, Gary Snyder said, the poet, he said, I think everybody's doing about as good as they can. And now there are problems with that sentence. And there are problems if you take it too, too, too seriously. But it's worth thinking about that because that causes you to think about the structure of a society that has in some way led to some, I would say, deficiency in their humanity. So when I'm in that hardware store or when I'm getting a piece of equipment for um, a tractor or whatever, that's who they are. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I may not agree with uh, their worldview, but it's more important to think, how is it we got this way? What what have they been living with? And uh, I'm pretty blown over many times when I get to know somebody and I learn about their path and uh, how hard it has been. So I don't know. That doesn't get us to where we need to go in thinking about all of this. Well, uh, in, in this conversation, you've now used the term authenticity two or three times. What what does that term mean to you? What does it mean to say somebody is authentic? Well, I'll, I'll take my plumber. I have a water well that I had dug, and um, I had to move that water well back 25 feet because it's got to be at least 50 feet away from the river. And uh, that's a law in the county or the state, I guess. And so I bring this... Uh, plumber in because I need to get a new well dug and casing put down and so on. And uh, here is somebody that um, knows his work and he has to be dealing with me in a way that uh, he, he's honoring that I need water. And there are no shortcuts to me needing the water coming out of the ground. He doesn't try to to do the job in a cheap sort of way. Uh, he is interested in holding the cost down to you know a reasonable level. But I can trust him. I can trust him because he has learned his trade. He knows what his work is worth. He knows how much it ought to be per hour. And uh, he's not going to dig halfway down where he might just touch water. He'll put it right on down where there's maybe, you know, three feet of water over the intake. Uh, you see what I mean? There's a, and I think it, it comes in that world uh, that physical, the, the, what I've been saying a lot uh, over the years is it's the people that hold the world together that run around in pickup trucks and panel trucks are the ones that have these authentic lives because they are really, they really are holding the world together. The plumber I mentioned, the carpenter, you know, the the folks that know how to fix things, uh, keep things going. There's something trustable. Yeah. And uh, that's not, I'm not assuming they're not going to lie to me, 
<laughs> about something. But when it comes to their craft, they do not want to have to be called again because they did a poor job. So, Yes, you've talked with great respect about some of these scientists. You've met some of these uh, professors, and you talk about your respect for their craft. And right? we mentioned Hans Jenny, you know, the craft, uh, the science of figuring out soils. And as far as I can tell, you don't see a big difference between somebody doing work in a lab and somebody doing work on a plumbing fixture. It's about the the respect you have for the craft and your willingness to to do that work well. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. It's a matter of taking seriously their calling. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that those who take their work seriously is what brings out their humanity. Do you think that has something to do with growing up on the farm? You had older brothers and sisters that you were the youngest. You you watched older brothers and sisters do their work. You watched your parents do their work on the farm and in the household. Is that, do you think, where you picked up this respect for people who take work seriously and do it well? Yes, I think that's part of it for sure. For instance, I've done a lot of hoeing. And uh, bindweed is an awful weed. Its roots go deep. Uh, if you try to attack certain weeds uh, with your hoe and you leave some of that root to come back and have to do that again, you will find yourself bending over, grabbing that weed, uh, and try to grab it close to the ground so that you get real close to the ground and you pull up and you shake it and you throw it behind you. Now, you shake it because you don't want the soil in there that is going to keep its life going. You want it dead. And at the same time, uh, when you're going down the line with the hoe and you have a brother or a parent and uh, the, the uh, one of my great deficiencies is I talk too much <laughs> and I talk too much hoeing and they will put up with it a while, but when a brother drops behind to get a weed that I missed, I realized that I have been kind of scolded and there wasn't a word said, just the knowing of it. So no sarcasm, just uh, it's clear I missed a weed. Uh, so what I'm getting at is that it was me talking too much, and at the same time, there was the very work right in front of us all the way that you dare not neglect. The neglecting of that work is going to be more work later when the weeds come back faster. You You have to deal with the problem right there. And uh, I always thought that there was something wonderfully interesting that needed to be talked about. Uh, but I can tell you, you can be overly loquacious as a farmer or a farmhand. Um, well, I don't know. There's more yeah. to be said about all that, but uh, I've said more well, than I should have already. I've already talked to <laughs> Your earlier observation that late in life, you, you're starting to think you have attention deficit disorder and might have always had it, is illustrated by that. Uh, you found it hard to to keep still, it sounds like. Uh, yet you did learn that attention to detail, which played out, of course, in, in manual labor on the farm, but also in your your academic work eventually. Yet you never fully became an academic. You always wanted to work with your hands. Even these days, you're 84 years old and you're still up on your tractor. You know, you're still out fixing things. You're still in your shop. 
it sounds like you've made a, a lot of effort to make sure you stay engaged in the world in a certain way. Is that a conscious choice to, to make sure you're always using your hands? Well, just I, what I want to do. It's just what I want to do. Uh, I don't want to go to the Y, and I don't want to <laughs> lift weights, and I really don't want to jog, and I really don't want to walk. Now, I'll be happy to walk all over the place and be picking up things and lifting things and so on. Uh, but uh, to do it as something to keep me in shape, uh, no. One of the things I notice that when I get to writing, you know, I get out of shape. And uh, then I've got to go do something that uh, calls me. <laughs> You know, right now I'm cleaning up in in the little red barn, and uh, I'm doing plenty of work there. All right, well, it needed done, and it and it helps my body. I mean, in the Upper Paleolithic, we didn't go around lifting weights, and we didn't drop down and do push-ups. Uh, we lived in a world that called on the use of our bodies and our minds. And unfortunately, now, after agriculture began and we live in this fallen world, we have to do all sorts of artificial things to compensate. And uh, I just don't like that compensation routine. Some people like that. Some people like it. And I'm always amazed at how they could. <laughs> but... Uh, so I'm not criticizing them. I'm just more amazed that they have the kind of discipline to do that that I don't have. Hmm. I've tried to jog, you know, but I'd much rather take a long walk. Hmm. And I would much rather really sweat doing something what I consider real. Yeah. You mentioned taking walks, and it got me thinking about the role of landscapes in your life. You talk about the prairie with a lot of affection. When you're walking a piece of prairie, whether it's, you know, on your own property or nearby, what does that do to you? What what are you looking for and looking at? And what happens in you when you're out on the prairie? Uh, oh, boy. A lot of things, of course. And I've wondered how much of it is a result of knowing the history of the prairie versus there being something intrinsic about it. I mean, part of the history of that prairie, at least in Kansas, is that that is a vegetative structure, a diversity of species that's out there, beautiful flowering forbs, and the big blue stem, the little blue stem, the end-end grass, the switchgrass, and these this beautiful ensemble. That is a vegetative structure that's been there through all interglacial periods of the Pleistocene. That is, you know, 1,800,000 years. And when there's an interglacial period, that prairie is there. And so will be the insects. And so will be the burrowing creatures that come up to loosen the soil. So there is that history. Now, I had to learn about a lot of that history. When I was in high school or grade school, I didn't know anything about a Pleistocene. In fact, when I started college, I think the Pleistocene was like a million years old. Before I got out, it was 1.8 million. I mean, it really, it really got old there in a four years. But what about the appreciation of it without the knowledge. I've wondered about that. I went to South Dakota the summer I became 16, worked on a ranch of some, well, a relative of my mother, my mother's cousin and her husband. And I worked on that ranch, and boy, that was different than the hoeing, because, man, I had a horse, and that uh, Andrew and Ina Swan, they had a hundred head of horses. And uh, they just roam freely on that. And here were the prairie dogs. 
and here were the horses. And uh, here was the original vegetative structure. And here were, yeah, now and then, dens of rattlesnakes. And they had farm ponds where they'd bulldozed up and had ponds so that the cattle could water right there. And uh, they'd stock them with fish, and you could stop and fish. There was a paradise. And uh, I didn't know the name of a single plant. And I, at that time, didn't care, I, I guess. I'm amazed at how I allowed myself to be so ignorant about what the, the names of the plants were. So there's something that gets added once we start adding the names and learning the history that increases the voltage of interest. That right there justifies education. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned you grew up in, in a part of Kansas that was plowed. Uh, it was farm country. And you spent that summer in South Dakota in ranch land that wasn't plowed. It was used for cattle and other things. Two very different landscapes, and you've seen them both. It reminded me of uh, a trip you and I took. You, you drove me around a bit of Kansas so I could see your world. And we moved from that uh, farm area to the Flint Hills, which is mostly ranch land. Flint Hills are called that because you, you can see that Flint right up on the surface. And I remember when we when we moved into the Flint Hills, all you wanted to talk about was the beauty of that landscape. Now, you'd seen those Flint Hills hundreds and thousands of times. And I was struck by how you, when coming upon them one more time, still were taken by the beauty. And you said something that I, I will never forget. You said, the world will probably always be more beautiful than useful. So... You know, you're a scientist, you deal with agriculture, and yet this theme of beauty comes back so often in your life. What did you mean when you said the world will always be more beautiful than useful? Well, we have the utilitarian mind that thinks that if you put a subdivision on good farmland, you've improved what they mean is you've increased the value of an acre. So that's considered useful. And then the question is, where is the beauty of, let's say, let's say they uh, build a subdivision on prairie. Uh, now, all of that beauty is gone that I'm seeing and thinking about. So where would I find beauty in a subdivision that had formerly been prairie? Well, they're going to have sidewalks, and there are going to be cracks in the sidewalks, and there will be grass coming through, and there will be an insect that if you pay attention to the insect, you will see something beautiful. You may see a worm where the garden is for the subdivision house and uh, you will see that worm move and it will be more beautiful than useful even there with the desecration I mean I have never been to the Amazon I've always wanted to go but I hurt when I read about and see the pictures of the Amazon being cut to put in corn and soybeans. And so will that be more beautiful than useful? Uh, yeah, I think even in that cut over Amazon, we can find beauty. It's hard to escape from beauty if you're ready to observe. The biotic activity, as well as, say, the geologic layers. Let's say that there is a cut in a geologic layer, and there's limestone. And here in Kansas, there were ancient seas, 
And in there, you're going to see in that limestone, which is beautiful, you may even see some fossils, some clams, and there's a beauty there too. I just think that <laughs> this is not arguing that we have subdivisions and that we make cuts in order to um, have a road. This is only to say that um, beauty is there. I hear about prisoners that uh, look out the window and they're looking at the same branches of the same, say, elm tree and uh, that's what keeps them sane, some have said. And I don't doubt it. Uh, beauty is essential. And I'm saying that with the desecration that's going on with the ecosphere right now. It's still there. I think that's what I meant when I said that to you. That no matter how hard we try when we destroy landscapes, we cannot destroy the beauty of the world. Right. I mean, I could take a spade and uh, dig down on somebody's lawn, and if Hans Jenny were there, there could be a one-hour lecture on a spade of dirt that he sees as soil, where others treat it like dirt. So how we perceive the world is very much tied up in our appreciation of that beauty. That, that beauty is not an abstraction. It's not, if I'm understanding you right, it's not only for art museums. That beauty plays a role in the world that's crucial. Right. I see beauty uh, all the time uh, on, a, on a basketball court. Uh, I mean, I don't watch much basketball, but I see it there and watching the human body the way it is so in command of itself. Or I will see a runner. In fact, I see a lot of beauty in these people that jog. There they are. My golly, there's something about it that it's, I don't, they're, they're, they're only thinking about getting their exercise and getting their two miles in or whatever. Uh, but it's great to watch. And that comes right out of the Paleolithic. I love to watch runners. It's beautiful. <laughs> That's all. Now, there's some runners that are not as beautiful as others that you almost hope they'll drop out. Uh, I mean, they, there's some that just their equipment is not, uh, their bodies is not, uh, doesn't lend itself. But almost all of them are graceful. I understand this horse Seabiscuit that uh, was a great runner. I love to watch a horse race, too. The, uh, you know, supposed to be doing everything wrong when it walked. Not Seabiscuit walked, but did he know how to handle a run? And uh, I noticed Jim Ryan, the first to break the four-minute mile as a high school kid in Wichita, Kansas. You know, he was a beautiful runner, but I've watched him walk around in a cafeteria and I'm afraid he's going to drop his tray, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we're getting off the subject here about beauty. I mean, I'm just yeah. saying there's so much to celebrate beyond utility. Yeah. But it's all one. It's all tied together if we think about it. All right. Well, we're at the end. I have one last question. You once said that you don't fit in anywhere. So you come from farm country. You grew up in a farm community. You did a lot of farm work as a child, but uh, you're not really a farmer and, and never worked as a farmer. You have a PhD in genetics and you were a professor, but you're not really at home in academic settings. You ran uh, a nonprofit, the Land Institute, but you're hardly the typical executive director type. Um, in some sense, is it fair to say that you're a misfit? And if you are, has that been a good thing? Uh, has it been an advantage, a disadvantage? What do you think? Well, I wouldn't want to be a charlatan. 
which is to be a great pretender to knowledge. And I really don't like the idea that I am something of a dilettante. Uh, but if being a dilettante is what's necessary in order to have the great run that I've had in discovery of meaning and in friendships and this, that, and the other, uh, then the world presents so much for us, so much for us to engage with, that uh, to find yourself, for me, so embedded in one thing when there is all this diversity. So I don't know how to answer that. I just know that I was born into a good family. I don't think, well, I never heard my father say he loved me. And I never heard my mother say that until she was about to die. But I knew I was loved. And I never had a sibling, except maybe a sister once, pretty close to the end of her life, say they loved me. But I felt loved. And I felt, um, I felt, <laughs> they weren't thinking about me as a college person. They weren't thinking about me as a professor. I mean, about the most that they could say is, uh, I think Sharon's doing all right. But it was no attempt on their part to elevate my having been a professor. They, uh, this is what I did because this is what I wanted to do and it was useful work and so on. You know, my parents didn't come to my graduation from college. They did happen to be there for a master's degree, but boy, did they run just as soon as I got off the stage because they had to get back home. It was 30 miles away, and there was work to do tomorrow morning. You know, my father born in 1886. My mother born in 1894. Both of their parents, all four of them, were born before the Civil War. So they came out of a world that was spare, and I think that carried over into the mid-30s and until their death for them and for a lot of the relatives and the neighbors. This world that has unfolded with all the highly dense carbon is a world that, uh, well, I think of Milton's line, uh, she good cateress means her provision to those who operate according to the holy dictate of spare temperance. So the good cateress nature, the farming, you get your provision if you operate according to the holy dictate of spare temperance. And that's what I think is the world that I came out of. And a lot of my activity would have to be seen in the category of a blasphemous way because I have not lived according to the spare temperance come even close to that world. And uh, that's something to worry about. You came out of that, that spare world, and eventually you were flying all around the world doing the work you did at the Land Institute. And in our next uh, installment of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Land Institute and that work that took you all over the world. That's where you spent more than four decades of your life developing um, these ideas. So we'll, we'll come back to that and the trade-offs you made. I just want to say, uh, Sharon Wesley Jackson, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that your uh, siblings would have called you Sharon. That's your first name. Uh, back then, Sharon was very typically a male name. 
and you now go by Wes, of course. But uh, Sharon Wesley Jackson will take off from your farm origins in the next installment and talk more about the work of the land and and why that has taken you all over the world uh, all these decades. So thanks for uh, listening, folks, to this first installment of Podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. I'm Robert Jensen. Uh, We'll be back for another episode and look forward to talking more. Thanks, Wes. Sure enough. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen. For more information on their work, just do a search for each of their names online and you'll find a lot of information. If you've enjoyed this conversation, remember to tell your friends to look for it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks also to our sponsors, The New Perennials Project and Ecosphere Studies, an educational initiative of the Land Institute. And for absolutely tons of fascinating information and vital resources, or to make a donation, please be sure to visit landinstitute.org. This podcast is produced by Bill Vitek, Robert Jensen, Bob Sly, and me, Michael Johnson. Music and audio production services are provided by Marcelo Radulovic at Tidikakaman Studios. This has been a production of Perennial Films.